Thanks very much, Brother Jason, and good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. All right, we've come in our consideration of the life and the kingship of Josiah this week to the point yesterday where we saw Josiah's initial response when he heard the word. And we're going to develop that a little bit more this morning. Because this man had a heart that was set on fire by the word of God, as we said yesterday. He was a man who knew what to do. He knew that something needed to be done when he read the word. And he knew what an idol deserved. And as part of his response, he had caused the people to stand to a covenant. And isn't that what we hope for in our young people, brothers and sisters? That in hearing the word, it develops a faith within them, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word, and that they too then will eventually come to the point of a covenant. Now we know the end of the story, and what Jeremiah said, as we looked at briefly yesterday in chapter 3, about their hearts not actually being in the covenant that they made. But remember, put yourself in Josiah's shoes. He doesn't know that. The people didn't stand to a covenant and hold up a sign or hold up their hand and say, fingers crossed, just kidding. Josiah had no idea they were doing this feignedly. What he knows is that God has said that destruction is coming on the nation regardless of what he does next. But what he also would have known, I think, is this prayer from Solomon. Because when Solomon had prayed at the dedication of the temple, when it was first built, the very temple that Josiah has just finished cleansing to get ready to be back in service, I think Josiah knew this prayer from 2 Kings, Second Chronicles chapter 6. When Solomon said, when this people go astray, if they return with all their heart and repent, then forgive them. Let's just go back there and look just quickly since we're in 2 Chronicles already. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, at verse 36. If they sin against thee, for there is no man which sins not, and thou be angry with them, that's exactly what Huldah had said. Yahweh's anger is kindled against the people. And deliver them over before their enemies, who that's exactly what Paul had said, that they're going to be delivered into the hand of their enemies. And they carried them away captives unto a land far off from Nehemiah. That's exactly, you see where I'm going with that. Yet if they think in themselves, in the land, whether they are carried captive, and turn and pray unto thee in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done amiss, and have dealt wickedly. If they return to thee with all their heart, and all their soul in the land of their captivity, whither they have carried them captives, and pray toward their land which thou gavest unto their fathers, and toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house which I have just cleansed, you might say, if you're Josiah remembering these words, then hear thou from heaven, even from thy dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people which have sinned against thee. I think Josiah reached back to men like Solomon. He reached back to men like Moses and said, I can change God's mind if I try hard enough. I think he believed that, brothers and sisters. He clung to that prayer. And he also would have known God's response to Solomon in the very next chapter. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 
at verse 19. If ye turn away, God says, and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck them up by the roots out of my land which I have given them. And this house which I have sanctified for my name will I cast out of my sight, and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. And this house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passes by it, so that he shall say, Why has Yahweh done this unto the land, unto this house? Why? Because they forsook Yahweh, God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of idolatry, the land of Egypt. I think Josiah looked at their present situation. He had pulled his words echoing in his ears. He knows that God is just and what he's going to bring to pass on the nation, but he's not going to let go of that prayer. If they turn back to you with all their heart, do you know what the proof of that is, brothers and sisters? He's seen it already in his own family. That's Grandpa Manasseh. He had seen the power of repentance in Grandpa Manasseh's example. And he's going to try to do that in the whole nation. He's trying to turn as many hearts to God as he can, not just his own. So that even if they do, even when they do go into captivity, God will see their hearts and have mercy upon them and forgive them and bring them back. And we're going to see a powerful demonstration of that in our study tomorrow, brothers and sisters. So Josiah doesn't stop at cleansing the temple and making a covenant and purging the land of idols like we looked at yesterday. Because he knew that it can't stop there. We can't just purge our lives. As we concluded yesterday with this quote from Brother Sargent, he said in the teaching of the Master, he said, Concentration on prohibition strengthens the force of desire. Oh, I think this is so poignant, isn't it? The true method of casting out the evil is by implanting the good. No worries. I was waiting for it. Josiah is going to try to galvanize faith in these people to get rid of old habits and kickstart new ones, to lead by example and get as many people to follow as possible. He's doing with the people what he's already done to the temple. In 2 Chronicles 34 that we had read, just come back there now if you're in uh, 2 Chronicles 6 or 7 with me. 2 Chronicles 34, <clears throat> 2 Chronicles 35 rather, not 34. Um, Josiah is doing with the people he's going to start doing with the people what he's already just completed with the temple. He's gotten rid of the idols out of their life. He's gone through the land and done this purge. And now it says in verse 2 that starting with the priests, he set the priests in their charges and encouraged them to the service of the house of Yahweh. Perhaps you have a note. That word encouraged is the same word from chapter 34 where it said that they set about to repair the house of God. So he's going about now to repair the people. But he knew that it started first with repairing God's house. In fact, there's a really beautiful progression that we'll come to in just a moment of this service that is being repaired and prepared. 
Second Chronicles 35 records the greatest Passover that ever occurred in the nation. But woven through it are so many examples and lessons in leadership. And that's what we're going to hope to spend our time on this morning. We looked, we had a great foundation with Brother Kitson yesterday and some of the principles of the Passover and when it was first instituted. But we just want to look at the principles of leadership this morning, brothers and sisters, because God needs leaders. Leaders don't have to be a king like Josiah. They don't have to be a CYC leader or an arranging brother in an ecclesia. You can be a leader amongst your peers of any age. You can be a follower 99% of the time, but a leader the 1% of the time in that one key moment that God needs you to be a leader. We might not think of ourselves as a leader, but there are times when God needs all of us to be just that. And make no mistake, as the Lord says, leadership is not about greatness. He says in Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but ye shall not be so. Let the leader among you be as him who serves. That's Luke 22, 26. That's why we are brothers and sisters, servants to one another. So all of us at some time or another need to be prepared to be a leader in some way. Because a leader is someone who draws others along the path. At least that's what a spiritual, that's what a biblical leader does. True leaders, one brother said, don't seek followers. They make more leaders. True leaders don't campaign for votes. They make more leaders. So we want to spend some time in our class this morning just looking at some principles in leadership that come from Josiah's leadership. Now bear in mind, this is likely the first Passover that's been kept on a national level in over 70 years. It's the first one recorded since Hezekiah's Passover. And we're still in the 18th year. Brother Tim, you said that yesterday and the day before that. Well, so does the record. Did you notice that? We got all the way to the end of this Passover. And it says, though, the spirit doesn't, don't forget, we're still, verse 19, in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, when this Passover is kept. And perhaps the reason that the record is, is careful to point that out to us is because this is a man who's on fire and he's keeping the fire going. He's got all this momentum and he's trying to push the nation forward in the right direction. He's trying to spread the zeal. He's gonna maximize the enthusiasm and strike while the iron is hot, we might say in today's vernacular, and keep things going to fill the void that's left behind by the destruction of all the idolatry and the high places that the people who had been worshiping at them wake up the next morning and say, great, well, we got rid of the idol. What, what, do we do? what am I gonna do with all my free time now? Josiah says, I have some ideas, let's get going. And so it starts in verse one, moreover, Josiah kept the Passover. It's as though, as if to say, in addition to everything else that we just did, which we have to go back to the second Kings account, which we did yesterday, to see all those things that he's been doing. In addition to all of the stuff that we've already done this year, we're gonna keep the Passover as well. well. Well, why the Passover? Why not one of the other feasts? Why not the Feast of Tabernacles, perhaps, or the Feast of First Fruits? 
Well, the record doesn't tell us, but but I wonder, brothers and sisters, if it, if it's simply the time. You remember that the feast couldn't just be celebrated any old time of the year, whenever you felt like it. Although exceptions were made, like in the case of Hezekiah, when they they kept it in the second month, the feast had to be had to be kept at a set time. And it's like Josiah read in the law after he's purged all the idols, he read in the law that the time of year, lo and behold, for the Passover is fast approaching. And at that moment, he would have a choice. He could have said, mm, eh, too soon. There's too much preparation. There's a lot of preparation required in keeping the Passover, and we don't have enough time. Just like the people in Ezra's day could have said the same thing. We just got back from captivity. There's a lot of work to do on the temple. But no, what do they do? They stop everything and they keep the feast because the time had approached to do it. Josiah could have come up with all sorts of excuses if he wanted to for not keeping the Passover and waiting for the next feast. But he didn't. Because when Josiah read it in the law, he did it. When Josiah read it in the law, he did it. And that might seem so simple, but isn't it so easy for us to read it in the word and ignore it. He read it in the law and he did it. And that's going to be very evident as we go through this record in 2 Chronicles 35. But in addition to that, it, it's perhaps just worth reflecting on, especially at this time of the year. Which, which month of the year was the, the Feast of Passover kept in? Should be fresh in our brains because Brother Kitson. The first one, Sister Linda is holding up the first, I think that was first month, or were you holding up your hand? Both. It was the first month. That's right. So it's quite fitting because this is the first feast in the new calendar. Besides Rosh Hashanah, of course. We'll talk about that uh, separately. But this is the first feast in the religious calendar. Brother Kitson looked at this with us yesterday in Exodus 14. So it's a fresh start. It's a new year. And Josiah says, we're going to get this going in the new year. We're going to get things kick-started in the right direction. Not unlike we make New Year's resolutions today, except we just don't keep them very well. But it was, it was the beginning of the year, so let's get going. But it's also fitting that it was the Passover, because this feast, as we looked at yesterday with Brother Kitson, was all about remembering deliverance from Egypt, deliverance from the source of idolatry, where all of the idolatry for Israel's history stemmed from, or so much of it at least. That's what the nation is in the midst of right now. They've just purged, they've just remembered their enslavement to national idolatry. And through the work of Josiah, they're gonna be freed from that and saved from its, de its depravity. And as a collateral benefit, the Feast of Passover also lasts for a week, which is a convenient way to kickstart new habits. And what a great new habit this is for the nation. Out with the old bad habits, in with the new. Let's celebrate the feasts, just as the law commanded. And isn't that how you break a habit, brothers and sisters? How do you break a habit? Well, there's, you know, you'd look into it a little bit. There's maybe there's seven steps in some, and there's three steps in others. Maybe you have your own progression, would certainly welcome your thoughts afterwards. But at some point, very early on in trying to break a bad habit, you have to cut out the things that trigger it. 
You have to remove them from your life. You don't drive past that place. You don't buy that item. You don't spend time with those people. You get an internet filter. For Josiah and the nation, they've just done that. They've purged out the idols and the high places. Now, we won't spend time talking about internet filters this morning, but I would appeal to you, brothers and sisters, because we talked to this, we talked to the young people about this briefly yesterday. I would appeal to you if you don't have an internet filter in your home that you get one. It could save your young people, but let's be honest, brothers and sisters, it could save ourselves as well. One brother said many years ago, he said, having the internet come into our home without a filter is like having a 12 inch sewer pipe entering our home unrestricted, because that's what it is, isn't it? Or perhaps we might say sometimes that sewer pipe pumps fresh water into the house, but other times without any notice, it switches to sewage. If you don't have a filter on the internet in your home, it's worth, it's worth getting one. But as we talked about yesterday, it can't just be, well, we've got a filter, that's the solution. No, we've got to talk to our young people about it as well. But we have to, we have to find ways to cut out the trigger to prevent those things that will trigger the habit. And we have to have a substitute for it, something that will do instead of whatever the bad habit is. Willpower alone, despite the fact that we try this over and over again, willpower alone will never be strong enough to break a habit in the long run. We have to have something to replace the bad habit with. And for Josiah and the nation, that was, well, let's, let's get back to celebrating the feasts. Get rid of the idolatry. Let's start celebrating the feasts again. And we have to make the bad habit difficult to do, create the path of most resistance so that it's not easy to do that bad habit when the flesh wants to fall back into it. For Josiah, that meant, well, let's grind things to powder. Let's burn them. Let's get rid of them completely. On our internet filter at home, Sister Hadassah knows half the password, and I know half the password. And that's so that in moments of weakness, I can't just go turn the filter off. I would have to go to her and say, hey, can you turn the filter off for me? And she'll say, what for? <laughs> right? We have to be intentional and deliberate and honest about these things to, to make the path of resistance great back towards whatever the bad habit might be. Then we have to join forces with other people. We might call this accountability partners. Have that support network of people around you that you can be accountable to and, and them to you so that you can encourage each other. We looked a couple days ago at how Josiah had that. that maybe that's a peer like uh, Jeremiah was. It could be someone older like Hilkiah was. And then get as much buy-in from other people as you can. Among your family, among your kids, among your peers, among other brothers and sisters, and use that synergy and that, that togetherness and that enthusiasm to build and feed off of each other. For Josiah, we'll see today, that was the Levites. I think Josiah inspired the Levites and they caught hold of that spirit and they were off like a, a ball out of a cannon in their enthusiasm and, and the, the fire and the zeal that they caught. And let's not forget, brothers and sisters, how young this man is. There are some great ideas in the Ecclesia and there are even great ideas from young people. Lots of great ideas. 
and from those who are in their, their even in their teens. God can use them as tools for change in our households and in our ecclesias, just as well as any other. And just because it's something we haven't done before, some new idea, doesn't mean that it's a risky idea or a dangerous path. But did you notice how Josiah kept the Passover? Because this is important to keep in mind in this context as well. That this Passover, of course, is not actually a new idea at all. And he doesn't come along and say, well, I let's celebrate the Passover. But I've got some changes to the way we should keep the Passover. Because after all, it's been a long time and it was old and boring before. So let's do it a little bit differently. You know, Josiah comes along. And did you see, brothers and sisters, how often the fact is emphasized that they did this according to the writing, according to the law, according to the writing, according to the law. It's worth just coloring that or circling that because it makes it jump off the page that he's read it in the book of the law. He's read it again in the hearing of the people. And he's probably read it a lot more times than that too. And he says, okay, we're going to keep the, fe the feast of Passover and we're going to do it God's way, just like we've read because when Josiah read it in the law, he did it. So for example, first things first, verse three, we need to get the ark back in the temple. As a quick aside, did you notice what Josiah said? He said, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, ooh, there's a connection to David, king of Israel, did build. And then he quotes David in verse three, it shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. That's David's command. First Chronicles 23, verse 26. It's probably in your margin already. Because David is his role model. Now that doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, that everything in the Ecclesia has to be done according to the way we've always done. That only things that have been done and tried before in Ecclesial life should ever be done or tried. Think of all the different ways we try to preach the truth as an ecclesia today, as we try desperately to see if there are any in the world who might be interested. And Brother Robert's day, you read about it and how people came out in droves by the hundreds. They stopped keeping track. There were so many. But that doesn't happen today with our lectures, does it? So we've tried many things in addition to lectures or instead of lectures. But we kept the same core at the heart of the seminars or at the heart of the advertising, or whatever it is that your ecclesia does. The message doesn't change. We didn't start preaching a new gospel or praying to a different God or using a different book. And neither did Josiah. He's going to keep the Passover in the way God instructed. He's going to keep God in front of the people. He doesn't hide the fact. He doesn't try to make the message more tenable and more appealing by hiding the fact that this is, first and foremost, this is all about God. It's all about the word. It's hard to improve on an idea when God is the author of it. Josiah knew that, so he didn't try to change the Passover that they kept. And while we're coloring, there's another idea in this chapter that's, that's worth noting as well, because it comes up several times. It's one of the keys to all of this. It's the importance of preparation. Look how often this comes up in this chapter. It's there in verse 4, in verse 6, in verse 10, twice in verse 14, verse 15, and verse 16. 
Now it's worth noting those because there's actually, there's actually a beautiful progression in this preparation. Preparation is pretty fundamental to a lot of things in life, isn't it? You prepare um, when you're in school, you prepare for tests, you prepare for driving tests, you prepare to teach kids at winter Bible school, you prepare a garden plot in the spring and you prepare for harvest in the fall. You prepare the yard for winter snow and if you didn't, then you'll find some surprises in the spring. You prepare before you walk out of the door of your hotel room in the morning so that you don't look like the beautiful mess that we were when we rolled out of bed. Preparation is, is pretty basic and preparation in the work of the truth is just as fundamental. It takes deliberate time and effort and there's a beautiful progression here in which the preparation takes place. And now that perhaps we know where those, those words are, perhaps we've colored or circled them, it's a little bit easier to identify. Because in verse 4, who is getting prepared? Who is Josiah speaking to? I heard it very quietly. For those on Zoom, good morning, by the way. It's the Levites. In verse 4, it's the Levites who are being prepared. What about in the next occurrence, in verse 6? Who does Josiah say to prepare? He's still talking to the Levites, but he's not telling them to prepare. Who is it? Aunt Linda can't hold up a finger this time to sign language the answer to me, so somebody's going to have to help her out. Just making sure you're all awake. Who is it? Somebody from this table back here. Give it to me. Your brethren, that's right. So first the Levites were had, had to prepare. Then your brethren, they're supposed to prepare the brethren. And then in verse 10, who's being prepared? Well, it's not a who this time, it's a what. The service is being prepared, right? Prepare yourselves. Prepare your brethren, and then prepare the service. And there's a beautiful little exhortation that comes from that, isn't there? Because all the rest of the preparing that's going on in the rest of the chapter is the service. It's not just the fact that preparation is important. It's the order that the preparation took place. First, we have to prepare ourselves so that we can be equipped to help prepare each other. And once we're all prepared, our worship and our service to God will be prepared. That's the simple principle of the mode and the beam, isn't it, that Christ taught. We can't come to the ecclesia unprepared and hope to be of use to anyone else. Well, how do we prepare? Well, we don't just prepare for 30 minutes before we go to the ecclesia so that we look good. We prepare on a daily basis. We prepare by filling our head with the word, by talking about it in the home, discussing it at the table, by applying its principles and, and, and chewing on it and working through the difficult circumstances so that when we come to the ecclesia, we're able to help each other to further prepare. I prepared at home, but I need you to further prepare me when we get together at the ecclesia. Instead of just filling our conversation with the empty things that are so much easier to talk about. If I come to the ecclesia and someone asks me about something from the readings the day before and I haven't done them, well, I'm not going to be able to further prepare them, am I? That might seem like an easy one, but what about when someone comes and asks you a really difficult question 
about their life circumstances. And you feel, you know, that I'm a little bit dull right now. My sword is not very sharp. I'm not gonna be able to help further prepare them, to be of any use to them. That's the value and the importance of preparing ourselves at home so that once we've done that, we can prepare our brethren and prepare our service and our worship to God. What if none of us came prepared to Bible school? What if no one had a Bible or a hymn book? What if our kids were totally unprepared because the dear mothers in the room hadn't brought any of their clothes? Because let's face it, moms play an important role. What, what would we get out of Bible school if we came, brothers and sisters, and there was no presider, we just looked for a volunteer every day, and there was nobody to play the piano, in fact, there was no piano. That the meals hadn't been arranged ahead of time, well, the, the people who brought their own food, I hope you're ready and prepared to share. Oh, wait, you didn't bring your own food either because you didn't prepare either. We prepare for everything. Everything that we have to prepare for. And yet, sometimes we forget the value. <clears throat> Of, of continual preparation and the truth. But that's what preparing for the kingdom is all about. It's just as necessary, isn't it? And it's just as rewarding. It's just as rewarding. Well, what if Josiah had said, well, let's have a Passover, but we're kind of short on time. We have been really busy. And after all, maybe God will, will value that effort. So we don't want to go too crazy with the Passover. So let's just do the bare minimum to get it going. And then next year, maybe we'll try harder. But well, what kind of example and precedent would that set for the nation? Is that what he did? No, it's so far from it. Look in verse 7. Josiah gave to the people of the flock, lambs, and kids, all for the Passover offerings, for all that were present, to the number of 30,000 and 3,000 bullocks. These were of the king's substance. Second Chronicles 35, verse 7. <clears throat> Now, what's incredible about that, brothers and sisters, is that there's no reason, there's no indication in the record that indicates that this is a time of prosperity and wealth for Judah. This is not like the time of Solomon was. The nation's in a very different place now than it was back then. And yet Josiah, of his own substance, gives 30,000 lambs and kids for Passover offerings and 3,000 bulls. We went back to 2 Chronicles 30, just a couple of chapters, to Hezekiah's example, not for comparison's sake, because the, the comparison trap, as we said the other day, is very dangerous. We find out that Josiah gave more than three times what Hezekiah did. Now, the point of that is not to, to diminish the value of Hezekiah's offering, but rather to show that Josiah is willing to give and to give generously. Why was he prepared to do that? I think it's because he understood the principle of Ecclesiastes 9. He understood what he read in the law, that that's the spirit of the law. Not just give what you're required, you give based on what you're able. And in Josiah's case, he said, I will give willingly and generously. And this is the spirit of a man who understood when the law said, love Yahweh with all your heart, and all your soul and all your might, he's going to give it all. He's going to give everything he can. 
What an amazing spirit to follow in our own spirit of giving, brothers and sisters. Whether we're giving of possessions or of service or of time or of ability on an ecclesial project, whether we're preparing our dish for a potluck, we don't just do it until we can say, good enough. My service to the ecclesia is eh, good enough. That's not the spirit of giving that Josiah showed. He gave in abundance. You remember what Paul says of, of the Philippians in 2 Corinthians 8 with the Jerusalem poor fund. When he's gathering for the saints in Jerusalem, he says that in their deep poverty, their giving abounded with liberality. Deep poverty, abounding liberality. That is a beautiful spirit to emulate. Because sometimes in ecclesial life, brothers and sisters, we feel like we are in deep poverty. We have nothing left in the tank. We're spent. We're exhausted. We're stretched thin. We've done enough for some effort. We've given all we can for some brother and sister's need. And then the phone rings. The spirit of Josiah is to give liberally and joyfully, and even in deep poverty, whether we give two mites or in abounding liberality, God can bring great good even from an exhausted effort. And what is the result? Verse 8, the princes gave too for the needs of the people and the priests and the Levites. Josiah's spirit has, has become like a contagious virus, you might say. And his example inspired his princes to do the same. Think of the example that's set for his sons, young princes in Judah, who were probably at this time about 10 and 12 years old. We talked already in our studies about how the example that parents set has such a huge impact on the kids, that whatever they see us do or not do, they will perceive as totally normal. Now, it's, it's evidently not referring to Josiah's sons as the princes, because as we said, they're quite young. And it also refers, it tells us who it's referring to, Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel. And they didn't give begrudgingly. They didn't give begrudgingly. They gave because they were inspired. They gave willingly, the record says. Ooh, now there is a significant difference, isn't there, between giving generously and giving generously and willingly. We can give our offering of time or service or money or whatever it is because we know it's the right thing to do. I should do that. The law of Christ requires me. No, no, no. The law of Christ compels me to do so. We can do it to be seen of other people. We can do it because, well, we have to, because our parents told us to do or because we told our young person to. But to do it with a cheerful, willing heart is, is another challenge altogether, isn't it? To have a willing spirit in whatever we're giving. The word means spontaneously. They did this spontaneously. They didn't have to think about it. They didn't spend time weighing up 
the pros and cons. I can afford, I don't know if I can afford. They just did this spontaneously. They learned to do spiritual things naturally, to respond to a need for help with a, yes, here I am, not a, I don't know if I can afford the time. And the beautiful thing is that the record reads as though the inspiration of their giving is what they had seen Josiah do. Because good leadership makes more leaders. Good leadership inspires other people to follow without even having to command them to do so. Isn't that the whole principle of an exhortation? That we're drawing other people alongside, not just beating them in the right direction. And then their example becomes contagious as well. Because in verse 9, there's more people who do the same thing, giving of their own substance in abundance, willingly. It's a snowball effect of positive spiritual energy in the ecclesia. It catches on and it spreads throughout the ecclesia. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but there can be times when you feel like, okay, I'm going to try to inspire other people. And then it seems like the snowball stopped at the top of the hill. And so our reaction is, I'm done making snowballs. But no, we need to keep, keep, keep going. Keep the enthusiasm, keep the positive spiritual energy. It will catch on because that's the power of the still small voice. It will kindle a fire in the remnant. God needs us to do that. And now everyone who could possibly be involved in the next part of the process is. As we continued in the reading that Brother Jason did, the priests are there. The Levites are there ready to support the work in verse 10 and 11. The priests are doing their part of the job. The Levites are doing their part of the job. Everybody's busy, at least in the priests and the Levites. The Passover is killed. The blood is sprinkled by the priests, just as the law instructed. Let's make sure we do it the right way. A burnt offering is made as we turn the page, and then it's set aside to distribute to one of the families, as, just as the law instructed. And another is made, and it's set aside to distribute to another family. And another, and another, there are over 44,000 animals when you do the math, and it's all got to be done today. It all happens in one day. And the Passover is roasted in the fire, just like the law says to do. And the other holy offerings are boiled in pots and cauldrons and pans. Anything we can get our hands on, run home and grab it, because there are so many to do. And then there are, they're distributed among the people. And you see what it says at the end of verse 13. There is an urgency here. There's so much work to do, but it has to be done according to the commandment, just the right way, and it has to be done well. They are literally running from thing to thing. Do you see the margin at the end of verse 13? It says, they divided them speedily among the people. Margin made them run. That word is used over 100 times in the Old Testament, and over 75 of them are translated run or running or ran or runs. I love the image of this, that spirit of Josiah that had been running through the nation to stamp out idolatry, and then he comes home, and it's like he keeps running to keep the momentum going, and now it's caught on in the whole nation. The priests and the Levites are running from thing to thing, and the people are eager to have it so. And the priests are so busy with the burnt offerings all day and into the evening, as it says in verse 14, that they don't have time to prepare their own offerings. They're so busy in ecclesial life. 
So what happens? The Levites see the need and they jump in and do the work. I love this. What a fantastic spirit of working together we see in this ecclesia here. Everyone's busy in the work. And when one person has their hands full and another person has a spare moment, they jump in and share the load. Reach forth your hand. Remember your brother. Consider your sister. Forget your own troubles and meet their need. And they've done that for the priests. And then they see the same need for the singers and the porters in verse 15. Because their work is important too. And, and we can't ask them to leave their post at the door and in the choir. Because they've got important jobs to do. So the Levites, the Levites say, no problem, we've got you covered too. I love this, brothers and sisters. We'll prepare for you so that you can continue the important work that you're doing to contribute to this day. That's part of the spirit of ecclesial fellowship, isn't it? Sharing together in everything, in the giving, in the receiving, in the work, in the worship. And when we see a need, we don't delay. We jump in and we get to work. Even if it wasn't the job that I was asked to do or called to do, even if the job it's a job I'm not very good at. We have an expression in our house that we often use with our kids. It's been passed down from generations before us. See the work, do the work. If it needs to be done, don't look around and say, I'm busy already. That's so-and-so's job. It's their responsibility. See the work, do the work. Grab hold of the spirit of the priests and the Levites. Jump in like a Levite and, and do somebody else's work. Don't wait to be asked. Don't wait to be told. Don't wait for an announcement from the platform and then sit there and think, well, I knew that didn't get done. Just jump in and do it. My brother and sister did this for us a few months ago. We had a really busy week. So many things going on between music lessons and schooling and other ecclesial responsibilities. And we were literally running out of time to get it all done. And we were on for hall cleaning. And so on Saturday afternoon, we had this window of time slotted, six o'clock. We'll get everything else done we need to for the whole week and the whole day. By six o'clock, we're gonna to get to the hall and we're gonna do hall cleaning. And we arrived somewhere around six o'clock. And I kid you not, as we arrived, we got a message on the phone from another brother and sister. And they said, hey, I know you had a busy week. I know you're in for hall cleaning. It's done. We don't have a small hall, brothers and sisters. That's not a small effort, but that's the spirit of the Levites here. But they wouldn't have known if they hadn't been in tune with our needs. There's no way we can know when each other needs that help and support unless we're in tune with one another, right? When some part of a brother and sister's work isn't getting done, maybe it's because maybe it's because that brother who naturally we're a little bit critical of, or that sister who we think, well, she should have prioritized her time differently. Maybe it's because they're busy in ecclesial work that we are not even aware of. So we jump in and we do it for them with a willing spirit that runs to do the work. What an encouraging example the Levites are setting for the nation here. And it all gets done in one day. The record says, incredible, because everyone did their part and everyone got involved and worked together and supported each other. It's amazing how much gets done in ecclesial life when we all, when all the hands work together. And it's so encouraging for the ecclesia. 
This is what Galatians 6, verse 2 looks like in practice, isn't it? Bearing each other's burdens. But we have to know what each other's burdens are so that we can bear them. Verse 18 says, There was no Passover like this before Josiah's day or since. So much of this Passover takes our minds back to the last Passover that had been kept, doesn't it? There are several similarities between Josiah and Hezekiah's Passover. The remnants coming from the north, casting incense altars for other gods into the brook Kidron, priests standing in their place after their courses, involving the Levites heavily. But there are some significant differences, too. That one was kept in the first month and the other was kept in the second month. One, we saw Josiah did it according to the commandments, according to the commandment, according to the commandment. And the other is so careful to say that Hezekiah kept it in the second month otherwise than the commandment, as it were. But does that mean, brothers and sisters, that Josiah's Passover was better? That it was in some way more pleasing to God than Hezekiah's Passover? Well, that's not actually what verse 18 says, is it? And I think that's the danger of the comparison trap that our minds naturally fall into. Because verse 18 says there was no Passover like Josiah's before or after. Verse 18 doesn't say Josiah's was the best Passover ever kept before or since. And there's an important difference because Hezekiah's Passover was very well-pleasing to God, even though it had several things about it that were not according to the law. Otherwise, than it was written is, is when they kept it. But Hezekiah prayed to God and said, do you remember what he said? He said, pardon everyone who isn't properly sanctified according to the law. Why? Because they've prepared their heart to seek you. And Yahweh heard that prayer because the people's hearts were in it. And in Josiah's day, Jeremiah says, most of the people's hearts weren't in it. So which one is God more pleased with? Ooh, that's a difficult balance, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Sincerity, truth. They come together in 1 Corinthians 5, don't they? And the Apostle Paul, writing about the Passover, no less, says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? We looked at this with Brother Kitson briefly yesterday. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the, the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. God accepted both Passovers. He was pleased with both because both men did the very best they could in the circumstances that they were faced with. We can't compare the efforts of one household to another. We can't compare the efforts or the result of an effort of one ecclesia to another. It's so natural and easy to do that, isn't that? And yet, if nothing else, Hezekiah and Josiah's Passover show us 
that there is so much more than just what we see on the surface. God needs to see sincerity and truth. God can be pleased with efforts that we might look at, and in our estimation, this is clearly better than that one. God says, nope, both can be well-pleasing to me. In all of this, for Josiah, the keeping of the Passover wasn't just about adherence to the law. It wasn't just about doing it according to the commandments and carefully making sure that everything was done just so. He's using this opportunity to show the people the kind of wholehearted, generous, spontaneous giving that the law was meant to teach. He's trying to kickstart new habits. He's trying to reestablish good things in the nation to fill the voids left by the purge that they've just gone through. He's trying to show them that preparation begins with yourself. You first have to prepare yourself before you can prepare your brethren and then before the service can, can be prepared. He's trying to teach them as leaders, you give liberally and joyfully in whatever service there is to offer. That everyone can be a leader in some way, in some circumstance, even if just for a moment, to show them the need to look to one another's needs, to bear one another's burdens, to be aware of each other's burdens, and to jump in and carry one another. It's tempting, brothers and sisters, at this point in the record of Josiah's life, to look at his efforts in purging the nation and in standing to a covenant and reinstituting the Passover and getting the whole assembly working together in such harmony and then say, ah, but I know what happens next. Let's put a little asterisk next to how Josiah died, shall we? It's so tempting to do that. It's tempting to look at Jeremiah 3 and say, ooh, but all of this good that Josiah has done has the little asterisk of they did it feignedly in their heart. But we're going to see in a powerful way, brothers and sisters, in our study tomorrow, God willing, the lasting impact of Josiah's efforts, that thousands, tens of thousands, were impacted by his efforts, this faithful man who turned to Yahweh with all his heart.